Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Hail to the King, my retrospective series on the Godzilla film series. If you want to see an earlier attempt I had made on this concept, my videos are still up on Daily Motion under the moniker The Solitary Nerd. Unfortunately, I only got up to King Kong vs. Godzilla in that series, so let's hope this one goes a lot better. I have been a fan of Godzilla since I was a kid. Just something about seeing a giant green radioactive lizard destroying a model city is exhilarating, and no one's done it better than the King of the Monsters himself. But where did this so-called king come from? Well, sadly, he's a byproduct of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombings. Initially, Toho wanted to do a co-production with Indonesia about the aftermath of Japanese occupation, but anti-Japanese sentiments because of said occupation led to the producer's visas being denied by the Indonesian government. On his flight back to Japan, producer Tomoyuki Tanaka conceived of a monster movie that was a mix of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which was released the previous year in 1953, and the Daigo Fukuryu Maru incident that had happened in March of 1954. The Daigo Fukuryu Maru, for those who don't know, uh, was a fishing boat whose 23 crew members were contaminated with radioactivity from the Bikini Atoll hydrogen bomb testings. So radioactivity and the atomic bombs were fresh in the Japanese people's minds, and monster movies were seeing a rise in popularity, both with the recent release of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and a recent re-release of King Kong. Tanaka finished an outline for the movie on his flight and gave it to producer Iwao Mori, who approved the project after Eiji Tsuburaya was brought on as the special effects director to confirm it could be financially possible. With the addition of director Ishiro Honda, the film was set to begin production. During the next months, the film went through various revisions, starting with having the monster be a giant octopus, as well as taking a lot from the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. The pitch was even titled The Giant Monster from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, throwing in an extra H.G. Wells reference for good measure, and having the scientist Dr. Yamane wear a cape and dark sunglasses. Honda worked with screenwriter Takeo Murata to put together the script over the course of three weeks, working out of a hotel room. As for the monster itself, Tanaka envisioned a gorilla-meets-whale design, which brought about the name Gojira. It's a portmanteau of the Japanese words for gorita and kujira, which mean, respectively, gorilla and whale. So Godzilla, or Gojira, is essentially a gorilla-whale. But uh, they settled for the dinosaur-like design, which mixed in bits from Tyrannosaurus, Iguanodon, and specifically, Stegosaurus. Like the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Tuburaya initially wanted to animate the monster using stop-motion, but had to settle for using suitmation. The suit itself was heavy, causing performer Haruo Nakajima to fall over while inside in the first <laughs> fitting. The first suit was cut in half and given suspenders to be used for close-up shots of the feet and legs, while a lighter suit was made for full-body shots. Although the suit caused Nakajima to sweat so much, he lost 20 pounds during production and could only be inside the suit for three minutes before passing out. One of the project's biggest issues was getting people to take it seriously. While monster movies were popular, they were still considered B-list, and several directors passed on the movie initially feeling it was stupid, while Honda took the project very seriously. He took it so seriously, in fact, that on the first day of filming, he had his crew of 30 people read the script and told them to leave the project if they weren't going to take it seriously, wanting his crew to have as much confidence in the film as he did. As far as I can tell, nobody left the project. 
After some issues during production of dealing with Japanese self-defense forces and the harsh weather conditions on location shoots, Honda himself suffered a blistering sunburn that left permanent scars on him. The film released on November 3rd, 1954. The film sold 9.6 million tickets, making it the eighth most attended film in Japan in 1954. The initial critical response was more mixed, as many saw the film as exploiting the devastation from both World War II and the Daigo Fukuryu Maru incident. One critic said at the time, This movie is absurd because such giant monsters do not exist, as though movies can't depict fantastical elements that aren't real. Oddly enough, these critics began to sing a different tune after American critics began praising the movie. After the release of the American cut, Godzilla King of the Monsters, critics praised the film for its depiction of the horrors of the atomic bomb, and after hearing that, the Japanese critics began to recognize Honda's silly monster movie as the allegory for the horrors of atomic weaponry we know it as today. Since then, Japan has embraced their King of the Monsters, with many Japanese critics calling Gojira one of the top 20 Japanese films of all time, ranking 27 out of 150 of the best Japanese films ever made, according to one critical uh, consensus. And of course, they have Godzilla serve as a cultural ambassador, even so far as gaining a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. On top of all of that, Gojira is seen as the progenitor of the tokusatsu genre. This is the same one that features Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, Ultraman, and all future kaiju movies like Rodan, Mothra, and Gamera. So with such a cultural onus placed upon it, how does the movie hold up after 66 years? Really well, surprising no one. Honda's desire to take the subject matter seriously helped differentiate it from the usual B-movies of the time especially the ties to the Daigo Fukuryu Maru and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The second attack on Tokyo and the aftermath almost recreate the imagery and emotions of the atomic bomb attacks. Without that iconography and the allegories brought up by the oxygen destroyer, I doubt this would have held up as well. That's the thing about the atomic weaponry allegory in this movie. While Godzilla is the main allegory for the atomic bombings, the oxygen destroyer acts as its own allegory. Sarazawa designed the oxygen destroyer as an alternative energy source, much like how atomic energy was used as an alternative energy source to coal and oil. But he knew the destructive capabilities of it and was willing to take the secrets of it to his grave to prevent it from becoming another part of humanity's ever-growing arms race. He didn't want his oxygen destroyer to become the next atomic bomb. Not to mention that the argument for using it for protection of Japan from Godzilla is... Not so coincidentally, also the argument used by the U.S. government for dropping the atomic bombs in Japan. This was to prevent further casualties and threats to America. So, whether Honda intended it or not, that allegory still is there and still holds up really well. The movie's artistry can be seen from the very first seconds. As the Toho logo plays, the only thing you hear is this drum, this big bass drum signifying footsteps followed by the iconic Godzilla Roar with the title screen before going into the equally iconic Godzilla March by Akira Ifukube, and that's just the opening credits. It's any wonder that Criterion wanted to add this to the collection. Whether the other Showa films warrant this distinction, we'll have to wait and see. Something else I noticed more during this rewatch uh, was just how much of the first act was driven by bureaucracy. While Shin Godzilla would make its main theming be about Japanese bureaucracy, Gojira's first act mainly deals with how the Japanese government handles the missing ships at sea and the discovery of Godzilla on Odo Island. 
a small fishing village that follows more traditional Japanese practices. Really, Godzilla doesn't play into the main plot until his first attack on Shinagawa nearly an hour into the movie. Honestly, the one aspect of the film I don't really care for is the love triangle made between Emiko, Ogata, and Dr. Serizawa. I don't really care for romance plots anyway, and when so many romantic dramas use love triangles as their driving force for conflict, I've come to see it as a cheap trope that doesn't mean anything. It isn't even featured that much, and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised to hear it was added to appeal to female audiences, since that's the go-to argument for it in Hollywood. Maybe if I felt some actual chemistry between the characters, I wouldn't notice it as much, but the actors don't seem to be into the romantic subplot either. It's like everyone's going with it out of obligation. At any rate, Gojira is a certifiable classic, from Tsuburaya's effects to Ifukube's score, all under Honda's direction. So much of this movie holds up and is well worth the watch, which, thanks to Criterion and HBO Max, is easier than ever in the United States. While Gojira would see a sequel in 1955, we'll be taking a quick detour next time to cover the 1956 American version of Gojira, as it's the most changed from its source material in this series, and I feel it warrants its own episode. Next time, we'll be covering Godzilla, King of the Monsters from 1956. Until then, thanks for listening.